Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association. The voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. The retired Supreme Court justice examining the 2020 election plans to release details of his investigation next month. Plus, the top Republican in the state assembly punishes a member from his own party for falsehoods about the election. And lawmakers take aim at gun laws to kick off their first session of the new year. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for January 21st. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. J.R., this week, uh, let's start with Gableman update in his election investigation. We are actually going to see some recommendations from Gableman's report by the end of February. That's what he actually told you. Mm-hmm. And then Speaker Voss kind of confirmed that's going to happen. Um, but a spokesperson also said there's no way that this full investigation is over by any means. What these legislative recommendations are basically that Voss wants to get his hands on them and then in turn them into legislation to vote on before the legislative session uh, is over for the year. And like I mentioned, this investigation will continue even after this report is produced. And Assembly Speaker Voss said he's fine with that. He's fine with Gableman doing this past February and once again is blaming the delays on Gableman's investigation for this ongoing lawsuits challenging the probe. And quote, uh, he said, uh, I have been saying it. It wouldn't have been for liberals suing us. This would have been concluded by December. So once again, Gableman's investigation is going to be prolonged. We actually had some Democrats introduce a resolution mm-hmm. this week as well, once again calling to end Gableman's investigation. Now we know resolutions don't quite do anything, it's more of a statement. So let's first hear from some Democrats and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss once again defending this probe and why it's necessary. Right now there is no end in sight to the Gableman investigation unless this body chooses to end it. Uh, Michael Gableman is now embroiled in multiple lawsuits that threaten to extend not just beyond the end of session in March, but possibly uh, even until this November's election. And we are still debating an election now well more than a year ago that was decided and settled through multiple recounts, investigations, and audits that made clear that Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin. And so our resolution is intended to set that election aside so that we can all prepare for the ones that we have ahead of us this year and to stop wasting tax payer dollars with potentially no limit on an investigation that clearly has lost any sense of purpose and is just designed to go on forever and line the pockets of Michael Gableman and the people he's hired. So also, Gableman, late Friday, J.R., you actually broke this news that he issued even more subpoenas Mm -hmm. uh, to look into voting equipment that has been kind of heightened by conservatives and far, far rights as that they are the problem uh, Mm -hmm. of spreading kind of conspiracy theories. These are the voting machines that are fraudulent, which we know is not true, or there hasn't been at least any evidence of it. So kind of just recap us on the new subpoenas and I guess... Is this a good thing that we're probably going to see some recommendations by the end of February? So uh, first, remember, Robin Voss was saying, I want this done by the end of February. I want this to wrap up, so I get these recommendations. And we couldn't figure out how that would work with what was going on, which is these multiple court hearings, these dates coming up uh, on various things, like does Mike Gibbon have the authority to detain the mayors of Green Bay and Madison unless they comply with the Sempita? We don't know. We have a court fight about that. This kind of answered that question of they're going to get the recommendations in, but they're going to keep fighting these questions about the authority legally of game of the issue subpoenas and pursue these answers from these mayors. So, okay, so now we know it's going to go on. 
weekend, how long? When's it going to end? Especially if you're going to try and subpoena two out-of-state companies. So there's another thing. I'm not a lawyer. I've said that many times, so I can't tell you what the law says about this. But I am not sure how a attorney hired by an assembly committee, essentially the assembly speaker, to carry out a legislative review has the power to compel two out-of-state companies to turn over records. I don't know how that works. I have a feeling they're not going to be very excited about the idea of turning over what are really mountains of documents. Look at the subpoenas themselves. They want every communication with anybody in Wisconsin, essentially, about the 2020 election that they had. That's a lot of paperwork, potentially. They want all kinds of other records. They want you know, person to appear for a deposition. I don't know Dominion, for example, is really excited about the idea of sending somebody from headquarters in Nebraska to Wisconsin for a deposition in a private office. Going to guess or going to say we're not interested. But we'll see. Then what? How do they compel them to comply? Robin Voss, we asked him after a committee hearing on Tuesday, do you think they have the power to do this? And he said yes. But again, he's not a lawyer, and he's not sure how it would work either. So, all right, so now we have that piece of this thing going on. Look, uh, Gavelin is focusing on, we know the grant, private grants uh, to help fund election costs. We know he's talked about uh, voting in nursing homes and whether there's an issue there. We know he's talked about machines. This is the first example of him really trying to get at machines from the private sector rather than from the clerk side. The other thing about later with all this is he has a budget. It's $676,000. I've been going through the invoices every so often. He's poised to exhaust the, for example, the salaries portion of his budget probably in the end of this month, mm-hmm. the pace that he's on. What happens then? Right, because we're used to covering joint finance, the the budget committee where they have to approve moving money around in the budget, right? Right. right. I asked Robin Voss, well, can you do you have to approve this? Like, how does this work? He said, no. Long as we they have this overall budget, they can move money around. Long as he keeps on the invoices, we're okay. But people raise the question, well, how does this work then? Because again, never seen this before. Um, you put the X dollars into salaries, Y into um, office supplies. It's two thousand dollars for office supplies. He spent five grand on three computers last month alone. Mm-hmm. Um, How does that work? Again, Voss says, we'll just sign it. It'll be okay. But lots of questions about this, and I don't know when this is going to end. End. Right. Your recommendation in February, but end end is still up in the air. And it's, you know, my question is, what are these recommendations going to look like? Mm-hmm. Because he hasn't gotten a lot of information. You know, for example, these voting machine companies, when are they going to actually, and what if are they going to turn over? We have still these pending court cases challenging legality. Is he even able to sit down for depositions in private? So that's kind of the question that we know how, we know this might go on much longer, yeah. but what will those recommendations look like without him finally, in his view, concluding this investigation? And what will Michael Gableman find that the Audit Bureau? Auto, has yeah, it all found these other reviews have not It's gotten this law and liberty. Found. They've already pointed out things that they that Republicans act on. What new might he add to the discussion? And we kind of talked about how these voting machines have been the center of conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. Staying on the topic of conspiracy theories, that kind of leads into our next topic of a Republican who was punished by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss for his falsehoods um, about misleading conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. Uh, The man that I'm talking about is Republican Representative Timothy Rantham, and he lost his only staffer after uh, spreading multiple falsehoods about the 2020 election. So Assembly Speaker Voss uh, punished him, essentially, and accused him of 
uh, Rantham accused Voss of working with Hillary Clinton's attorney to authorize the use of ballot drop boxes. Voss said that was that's never happened, that, that, that I didn't do that. Um, in a statement shortly after we learned, I would say you learned, actually, you broke this story. Uh, then we got a statement from all of Assembly Republican leadership saying we support Voss's decision to discipline Rantham for these these falsehoods. Um, so let's hear a little bit first before we kind of dive into the details of this from Speaker Voss during a presser um, about why he decided to do this. And he's kind of talking essentially about Rantham, who also introduced a resolution to rescind all mm-hmm. 10 of Wisconsin electoral votes, which Voss says here that is not possible in Wisconsin. There are some who believe, there's one who believes, that we somehow have the right, even though every lawyer uh, that we have worked with in Wisconsin says we cannot undo the 2020 elections. Um, You know, Representative Rantan has that belief. That's his right. Um, But I think that what we're focusing on is not the past. We are looking at the past to learn from it, to make sure that we go into the 2022-2024 election cycles. We can guarantee that we don't have out-of-state billionaires trying to buy influence through the public-private process that was allowed to be happening. We want to make sure that we don't have folks who do ballot harvesting or allow um, somebody under duress in a nursing home or in places like that to not have their vote stolen by having somebody else cast it on their behalf because they're not mentally fit. Uh, I will stand with my colleagues. I think I'm in pretty good shape. Uh, I think most people appreciate what we're doing and that we need to focus on the future, not on trying to decertify the election and focus on the past. So here we are seeing Speaker Voss once again kind of put in this tough position um, and actually taking kind of a a big action here to Mm -hmm. punish one of his own Republican colleagues because we also have him and Janelle Branchin also not on the same page. So he's kind of trying to separate himself from uh, these conspiracy theorists um, in the state legislature, but he's also defending his own probe, saying this is the solution. We're not trying to overturn the results, but my investigation that I helped launch is important because we want to restore faith in future elections. Uh, the line I heard last 24 hours is Robin's trying to rein in the crazy, essentially. Um, now remember something, Tim Rantham has pushed these theories for weeks, if not months. He enters a months. resolution about uh, rescinding the 10 electoral votes for Joe Biden in the fall. The final straw was Tim Rantham's been going into the districts of his fellow Republicans and saying, here's my evidence, in his words, of what happened. If your lawmaker isn't on board, you should think about a primary for him or her. They had a caucus in which members expressed their frustration at Rantham for, in their words, telling lies about them. And Rantham walked out, Robin told me, and was unfazed by it. That was the final straw. It was going after the members. It was going after Robin Voss personally. It was not pushing the election stuff. And talking to Robin, he didn't mention about, like, the resolutions, yet Robin is critical of those things. They're not real. Right. The final straw was going after the members. This is defending the team. Um, so people are commendable to Robin Voss for, hey, this is his team. He's got to stick up for him. The staffer was reassigned to the office of Senator Leader Jim Steinecke, uh, who's retiring. It's a punishment. The question is what happens next, right? Is Rantham going to back down or keep going? We tried to talk to him yesterday during the floor period. He wouldn't talk to me while they were on the floor. Uh, one of my colleagues tried to catch him after the floor. And he said he got things figured out first where he talks about this. So what's he do now? He's been doing these, these statements are called Let There Be Light. He has these press releases he puts out every couple of days on his website uh, about things he's found or he's putting out there. So those are up. Is he going to stop that or keep it? Mm-hmm. And then you pair this with this, you hit him up with Branchin. So Janelle Branchin retained an attorney for the lawsuit Josh Call filed about the 
subpoenas Michael Gableman filed trying to prevent Gableman, or sorry, Josh Call filed to prevent Gableman from questioning Megan Wolf in private. There were attorneys for Voss people there. The committee somehow had an attorney. Robin Voss said that wasn't approved by me. I don't think it's valid. I'm not sure how he's going to get paid. Mm-hmm. And I say that in that tone because that was Robin's tone essentially. You have to ask her. Right. I don't know. Typically with private counsel, leadership approves those through a vote. I don't know how this thing worked. We couldn't get an answer. Uh, we could get the contract this week. So it's also a shot at Janelle, right? Because she's been having all these informational hearings about things with experts who some of them don't understand the election registration system in Wisconsin, for example. There's been criticism of that. Um, so Robin's trying to kind of pull things together. But his one problem is, people tell me, Gableman's still out there. And Gableman is still doing things that make Republicans cringe every now and then. So how's that going to end? That's the other piece of the puzzle. And for just to let the kind of viewers know, you know, losing a staffer, that means, you know, someone's re- no one's really paying attention to your emails. No one's answering calls. You don't really have that aid to help you out, even with press releases, et cetera. So, you know, he's kind of just a, a, a lone, yeah, lone now, star in his office. But, you know, I've called. I stopped by yesterday as well to try to get him on the floor. I think a lot of people did, but I, th- I think you're right. He's just probably just not talking right now, trying to figure things out. Public and lawmaker about 16 years ago said it's a part-time job. I don't need a staffer. He did it on his own. Uh, yeah. Powers, I remember that guy. All power to you. <laughs> but, um, yes, it is much more of an intensive job, and then there's less help for doing what he's trying to do. He's posting videos on his website, on YouTube, the Rantham Report, talking about what he's finding, so he'll have to figure out how to do that. And I guess we'll see if those videos continue. Yes. Uh, moving on to our uh, next topic is we have some update in some campaign funding figures. Now, we kind of talked a little bit about some of these numbers a few weeks ago that we got uh, Governor Tony Evers, you know, rolling in this year, starting about $10 million, mm-hmm. and Rebecca Clayfish's cash on hand. Um, what we didn't know specifically, too, is um, kind of Rebecca Clayfish's full total. Cash um, on hand. Cash on hand, which is at $2.6 million. Uh, some new figures we got all from the AG's race, which, I mean, the big headline there is <laughs> Josh Call, uh, the incumbent attorney general, is blowing his opponents out of the water, as you can see there, comparing the numbers. And then we also have... Uh, this is kind of the same theme, JR, that we've seen in 2018 and 2020. Uh, Wisconsin Democratic Party and the chair, Ben Wickler, is able to massively get so much money into this race. So my question to you is, what is significant about these uh, figures, especially when it comes to the two parties? So uh, last week we got, you know, the governor announced how much he raised, how much cash on hand. We didn't know how he raised it. The report shows that he outraised Clayfish and individual donors. That was important to people I talked to because... The state party is such a, f- a financial windfall for Evers that if it was like $5.5 million raised but half it from the party, that's a different story than raising more than Clayfish from individual donors. And the party is linked to the candidates now because of the way Republicans wrote finance laws in 2015, I think it was. Parties can make limited contributions to candidates and also accept limited donations. So, for example, J.B. Pritzker, Illinois governor, gave his campaign $90 million bucks uh, this past week. He gave the state party, Democratic Party of Wisconsin, $490,000 last six-month period. That is more than the Republican Party of Wisconsin raised overall. overall. Mm-hmm. That is money that helps Evers. It helps Josh Call. It helps Democrats up and down the ticket, whoever the Senate nominee is going to be. It helps with infrastructure. You have to look at the candidate and the party to get the full financial picture. Republicans are behind in the state party front because donors like Wisconsin as a swing state, and you have the governor in office, that's a big uh, draw. So that's the thing there. With Nickel, or sorry, Clayfish, the big thing to note is that Liz Uline, 
who is an Illinois businesswoman, um, also a giant donor. She gave 200 grand to a PAC supporting Clayfish's campaign, plus 20 grand to Clayfish herself, which is the maximum donation. We've all been watching because Dick Uline, her husband, supported Kevin Nicholson in 2018. In 2018 Senate mm-hmm. yeah. Now, I don't know about your relationships, but my wife and I can't write big checks that cancel <laughs> each other out. We're all watching, are the Ulines unified? Right. Or if Kevin Nicholson gets in, are we going to see Liz Uline write her checks and Dick write his, and can they cancel each other? That's a fascinating inside baseball thing, but it's noteworthy with Nicholson chatter kind of percolating up that Liz Uline kind of sent a message of, I'm behind Rebecca. Right, and that's something, like you said, we're definitely going to watch, and we're going to get in a little bit more about the Nicholson possible announcement, <laughs> what's the latest in our stock report, so we'll save it for that. Um, also, man, busy week. Uh, <laughs> we also, of course, had a big redistricting hearing that lasted several hours that I'm sure JR loved Six every hours. single moment <laughs> of it. Uh, so the Supreme Court of Wisconsin heard oral arguments. So what we basically found out is kind of some of the key questions that justices were asking. It kind of gives us an inside look, maybe what map they're leaning towards and what lingering questions they have. Some of the key questions, what the number of majority uh, assembly districts, the appropriate number of municipality splits, appropriate population deviations among districts. So, JR, out of the six hours, mm-hmm. these were some of the key questions, but how does this play out when they eventually make a ruling. Um, did they lean towards one map over the other? And what are still some of those questions we're, we're left with? So let's start with like the first question. The number of uh, appropriate number of majority black districts. Under current law, we have six in the assembly. Governor Evers tried to create seven. Republicans created five. Now, when I say seven on the governor's map, know that he expands the definition of black to eliminate the black heritage. You get these these districts that are districts are about fifty percent black voting age population. The Republican maps have five which are more intense in their number of the black voting age population, but the sixth seat is down to 48.5% black, okay? The question is, the Voting Rights Act is, it requires in certain instances that a community of color have the opportunity to elect the candidate's choice with blacks, with whites voting as a black. So the question is how these districts are going to perform, right? So seven might be the right number. Five might, I, I don't know. It's their performance and how it plays with the white voting block. So there's an argument, for example, from Pat Rogensack, uh, one of the justices on the court conservative. She raised the prospect of, well, I have all these examples of black candidates who have done well in races. I don't think there's a problem with them getting white support, period. Her examples, though, were kind of odd. For example, Mandela Barnes, she brought him up in his races for the state assembly. In 2014, she pointed out he got like 98% of the vote in the assembly district. He was unopposed in the November ballot 2014. Not a great example. Brought up Lena Taylor. Uh, the current map is in place since the 2012 elections. Since then, Lena Taylor has been challenged once in the general election by a black candidate. So, yeah, she got 98% of the vote you know, in some of these races, but she was the only candidate on the ballot. So there's not a great example of a black candidate getting white support. Now, Rogan's other example was Ben Della Barnes in the primary for lieutenant governor in 2018. In that race... He did win two-thirds of the vote against a white candidate, Kurt Kober. So, but that race, if you covered it and knew about it, Kurt Kober was this kind of not unknown Sheboygan businessman, yeah. whereas Mandela Barnes had all the kind of, I don't say party support because the party didn't endorse, but all the big groups were behind him. It's, uh, it was an odd argument from Rogan Sack, people told me. But there's that question. Now, here's another nuance to it. I talked to lawyers last week, the week before. If the Supreme Court picks the map that Evers drew or that the lawmakers drew as is with no changes, 
there's an easy challenge to the federal courts about the Voting Rights Act because Republicans maybe have created too few of them, and years may have tried to create too many. Again, that, that performance, yes, the governor wants more majority black districts, mm -hmm. but at 50%, will they perform in a way that a black candidate can win a primary? Shorewood's a great example, all right? It's one of these districts that the governor is proposing. It is a high turnout, affluent white community in a largely black district. The argument is Shorewood can turn out, and if those whites vote as a block, they can prevent a black candidate from winning the primary and therefore winning the seat. Now, that's maybe an oversimplification about things, but this is the calculation you have to make for the Voting Rights Act to figure out what's their performance and what might happen with these seats. The group of plaintiffs that include black leaders, organized communities, argued about seven seats as well, but taking Shorewood out of that assembly district to make it a better performing one for black candidates. There's that. Now, we also, the court members said, least change approach to the maps you present to us. That run ran straight into municipality splits and deviations. Municipality splits. Right now, we have a number of communities that are split in Wisconsin because of the way Republicans drew the maps in 2011. Governor Evers, his map has fewer splits than current law, but more than Republican lawmakers. Annette Ziegler, Chief Justice, said, I don't, she made clear she doesn't like that, doesn't like the splits. She's from a small community, says that impacts us when we're split like that, we're a community of interest, what's going on? The argument from Governor Evers' lawyer was, look, when you take a least change approach, if you make few changes to what exists and there are a lot of splits, you have to have splits because of that. That's a least change approach. Now, that was our argument. Lawmakers say, hey, we did a much better job, kept communities together, ours is a better map. Brian Hagedorn, another conservative, says, well, wait a second. You know, we told you least change. I'm not sure that, you know, oh, actually, that's about the next, sorry. So there's splits. Now there is deviations. You can have a, you, you should, you're, you're shooting for equal representation, right, each district. You can have a, a variance, uh, like up to 2%, I think it is, with a legislative map between districts. The legislative attorney said, look, we have fewer deviations, a small deviation than Evers does. His map is bad because of it. Brian Hagedorn says, wait a second. We said least change was the most, you know, the driving factor here. Now you're telling me that we should kind of have this deviation thing be a, a big deal. That's a laudable goal, but I'm not sure it is the, the overall criteria for what's a good map and what's a bad map. He compared it to Lucy pulling the football from Charlie Brown. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you're a that court, a lot in politics. If you're a court geek, you know that Rebecca Bradley does not care for Brian Hagedorn and vice versa. They've been on opposite sides of various things over the last couple of years, and they have very pointed footnotes in their decisions, taking shots at each other. Rebecca Bradley later on, talking about these deviations, said, "I don't get how you say it's pulling the football away." <laughs> so just a little, little elbow, little Brian. jabs, yeah. <laughs> so, but there, you're, those are just a couple of the key things: appropriate number of black districts in the assembly. Uh, the number of splits of communities, because you, I mean, it, a, a goal is to keep communities together, communities of interest together, and then what's the appropriate deviation? Because Evers makes fewer. Uh, you get this. The split thing is an issue for Ziegler, and the deviations thing is an issue for a couple others. So, what I'm getting at is, I don't know where the justices are about the map. Right. And back to another point: if they pick the Evers or the Republican map as is, with no changes, they don't do that. They can change the. A map. They can move a they line. They can draw out one as well, yeah. That would be the avenue to go to the federal courts. And oh, by the way, which court do we go to? It's a three judge panel that's had a, a suit pending before it. They put on, on hold while this is going on. 
Typically, when the state Supreme Court issues a ruling and there's a federal issue involved, the appeal goes right to the U.S. Supreme Court. Just the, the, the wrangling about where it goes next could delay things. We're getting up to the timeline. The, the I was Elections just Commission. Say the timeline too, because they have. We can't wait two months. The commission, <laughs> wa- election commission, wants maps by March to have them in place by April fifteenth when nomination papers go out. Typically, they're done by June first. Primaries in August, so you could see in theory. In theory, you can see a map approved by the Supreme Court, and then an appeal that goes on beyond the November election, which. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Let's not go there yet. Right. But in theory, you could see that playing out. It, it could be a long process, depending on how this goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to our next topic. Thank you for so much for that in-depth <laughs> recap. Uh, we're going to move on to assembly return to the floor for the first time in the new year, and kind of had three, uh, I would say, themes mm-hmm. of on Thursday. One deal, dealt with expanding gun laws. Another was vaccine tampering, and. Another significant bill would be longer work hours for minors, and the tie-in there is Republicans believe allowing minors to work longer hours over the summer would alleviate some of the labor shortages that we're seeing in the state. So to just summarize some of the gun, uh, I would say they were pretty controversial mm-hmm. on the floor, took up most of the debate. One would lower the concealed carry age from 21 to 18, allow legal gun owners to carry their weapon in their car when they're dropping off or picking up their children from school, and allow anyone with a concealed carry license from any state to be armed and carry in Wisconsin. Uh, vaccine tampering, uh, this comes out of a situation that actually happened in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, where a doctor spoiled some vaccines, basically would change the law that it would become a felony if you intentionally destroy or spoil vaccines in Wisconsin. Um, That was also another Republican proposal. So uh, I want to go back to the gun debate because, like I mentioned, that was the main controversial bills that most Democrats spoke about on the floor. We're going to hear from a Democrat and Republican. Democrats' argument here is that Essentially, what lowering the concealed carry age would do is you would allow high school seniors to be able to be have a gun on school grounds. Um, Democrats call that dangerous and outrageous. Republicans saying, well, hey, if you're if you're 18 to vote, you should be able to conceal carry in Wisconsin. So let's take a listen to some of the arguments. This bill is not the mentored hunt and the kinds of bills that are for hunting safety. This is for a concealed carry permit. What we are facing with the passage of this bill is an 18-year-old can go out, illegally purchase a firearm, sit on school grounds, go to school events, and have that concealed carry weapon with them, with their friends, a high school senior. Does this sound like something the state wants? It is not. We do deny people the ability to own guns sometimes. When When they've been convicted of felonies, You can't possess a firearm anymore. Why? Because you've committed a crime. What crime has the 18, 19, and 20-year-old student or young adult committed? The crime of not being old enough yet? It's ageism. It's unconstitutional. And if you actually respect either the Wisconsin or the state constitution, the Wisconsin constitution or the federal constitution, you have to vote yes. Uh, and the assembly is going to be returning next week as mm-hmm. well. So got a whole nother host of bills that they're looking uh, to vote on and pass. But most of these bills that we just summarized, we know they're likely doomed for Governor Evers' uh, veto pen. Republicans are just trying to, you know, muster up support heading into election year. Mm-hmm. Look what we did. Look what we passed. Look what the governor blocked. Uh, let's get to stock picks this week. Uh, rising this week, we have some rising young <laughs> yes. new uh, Democratic stars, I guess you can see, uh, you could say, in uh, the assembly Democratic leadership. So assembly Dems can 
completed the leadership shuffle this week. So remember, uh, Gordon Hintz stepped down, Greta Neubauer became minority leader, Kaylin Haywood became, well, he will be actually will, will become be. on February 14th or 15th because Diane Hesselbein stepping down to go run for state senate. Beth Myers, caucus secretary, Neubauer appointed her to joint finance to fill Greta's seat. That created opening. So now we have uh, Lee Snodgrass from Appleton, Christina Shelton from Green Bay were elected, um, Sergeant Arms and caucus secretary. Of these six Assembly Dem leaders now, uh, four have been elected since January of 2018. The other two, Mark Spreitzer and Lisa Subek, were elected in 2014. Combined, they have, math is right, 23 years in the Capitol. Robin Voss has 17 by himself. This is a young leadership team, but it also reflects a young caucus. Of the 38 Assembly Democrats, 18 have been elected since New Bauer in that January 18 special election. Ten of them were elected in 2020. They are a new caucus. They are more diverse. They are younger. They're more female than we've seen in the past. This reflects them. There is some energy that they're bringing to the table, right? You know, it's a big generational change. Also some challenges. When you're in the minority, part of your job is to try and use, manipulate the rules to frustrate the leader. For the majority, you also have to know, like, what's the hill to die on? Like, what's the bill to really go push and have all your members on board fighting together? What's the fight to walk away from to protect your Steve Doles on Alaska, your Nick Milroy's up in northern Wisconsin from a tough vote that might not play well back home? How do you know that nuance? Oh, by the way, those new members elected since 20, they've only served during COVID. You're talking right, yeah. virtual virtual caucuses. It's harder to build team unity when you're on a Zoom call, as we all know, right. than when you're in a room together. You also have to now recruit candidates, raise money, connect with donors, and build a, a message for what could be a very difficult fall session or fall election for Democrats. It's a really uh, difficult challenge, but they have a lot of young, energetic people who've got some bright ideas that they're going to see how they do. And, oh, but we got to mention about leadership changes to Jim Sinekey's retiring. That's right, yeah. Uh, Adding think, to the growing list, right? Don't you have your tally in your yep. head? <laughs> uh, eight members of the assembly now have said they're going to either retire or run for something else. Uh, Adam Samantha Kirkman is county executive. She could be number nine. Went to watch for Jim Steinecke is who is going to run for drill leader in this coming fall. That person becomes in line, possibly, at the inside track to replace Robin Voss's speaker once Robin Voss retires. So right. big changes coming in the assembly leadership. And here's the here's one for the Assembly Democratic Caucus. Right. And uh, this week, mixed is this. I would like to do mixed with a big question mark. <laughs> is uh, all the attention was focused on Kevin Nicholson this week? I know you and I, both of our sources, were kind of telling us announcement was going to come this week, but uh, yeah. we didn't get it. And in the time being, uh, he got bashed yeah. by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss that said, "Don't run because you are going to impact our chances if you have a competitive GOP primary." And going up against Rebecca Playfish, his argument is that all the negative attention is going to be on Clayfish and not Governor Evers. Voss is the quiet part out loud. What Republicans been telling us for months in private of like this is potentially bad boss put a shot across the bow now kevin nicholson was unbowed by that he tweeted yes (laughs) tweeted back like basically do your job robin i got this here's the question we kind of talked this before um with you line liz you line backing rebecca where's kevin going to raise his money from right that's question number one um number two we've seen this play out before in 2018 it ran against leah vukmir who was kind of the establishment pick for u.s senate and lost it was a sometimes contentious primary. I got polling that the Clayfish campaigns, really just supporters, it showed her up on Kevin like 65% to 12% likely primary voters. As of right now, it's a campaign's polling, so take the grain of salt. 
three-way race with Jonathan Wickman, it's like 61.85, right? So she's way ahead. How does Kevin win a primary like that? You tear down the leader, right? That's the tried and true playbook. Will he take those shots? People say, yeah, they think he would because, it, and I caution here, my sources are largely like the professional political class, right? People who run campaigns, who've operated as lobbyists, folks who are in there on the Capitol. Um, they're not big fans of Kevin Nicholson's, right? They see him as this guy that they think is opportunistic, who's nakedly ambitious, and Kevin Nicholson doesn't care for those guys whatsoever. He is running as this kind of outsider thing, so he could care less about them. But my sources look at it like Nicholson will not care about Rebecca Clayfish or the team. He cares about himself. So if tearing her down is what it takes to win, he'll do it. Now, primaries can be good things for candidates. Tony Evers had a 12-way primary, whatever, 10-way, whatever it was. Uh, 16 start. when I first got into Wisconsin in so 2018. Yeah. came and went in the end, a couple dropped out. But, yes, oh, yeah. so there are no... He, he did, it did well. He did well because of it. it helped get attention get a for him. message out, excuse me. But nobody took shots at Evers in that primary. Donald Trump had a 16, 20, 25-person primary in 16. They didn't really go after Trump until it was too late. Like, they didn't take him seriously at first, right? It helped sharpen him as a candidate on the stump and all that kind of stuff. So primaries can be good, but they can also be draining your, draining your resources. If you're on your constant attack, it can be you know, bad for your numbers. So there are all kinds of things like that out there, in the, out there people are wondering about. And then who would help Nicholson, right? Does Dick Uline write a check? These groups that do ads, like, you know, call Emily Fan and tell her she's a horrible person. Not that anybody would, I'm, I'm assuming. But <laughs> we get people, those all the time, though. <laughs> the people who do those ads, they right. care about the check. If you write a check big enough, they'll run the ad. Totally. So who's going to write the check to help him out to get that ad run? It's a lot of unknowns out there. And the biggest one is, when's he going to announce? Yeah. It, is exactly. This, is this delay him having second thoughts or just finding the right timing to, like, launch everything? That I don't know. Or just get quiet after the whole Speaker Voss thing. Mm-hmm. You would think you'd maybe go on the attack and respond right away the next day, launch launch a campaign, unsure. But, you know, also on the other side, I do want to point out, too, some other people want anyone but Clayfish, mm-hmm. right? That That is also being circulated. But it's not Nicholson. So yeah. how late is too late, right? We're almost entering the month of February. Can just... Can they find anyone else at this point? I don't think that's going to happen. Hub- Eric Hubdy's still out there, kind of True. floating in the wind. We'll see. Yeah. There's time, but yeah. I mean, Hubdy can write a check. Uh, Nicholson can't. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, real quick, we'll, uh, our last topic is following is Eric Tony. Tony? Tony. Tony, so, excuse me. He's a, a candidate for attorney general going up against Call. Remember in July, Tony turned this not very good fundraising report, like $42,000 raised, right? Forty-three. Um, Ryan Owens, who's a UB Madison professor, was also running for. Attorney General, he outraged him seven to one. And people, like conservatives, like the activist base, liked Ryan Owens because he was a conservative fighter, whereas Eric Tony had this, commit- this cardinal sin of filing charges and dropping him over violating Governor Evers' state home order, right? With Owens dropping out, the thought was Tony has a chance now to prove he can raise the money, get organized, explain what he did with the state home order, which was. I'm a DA. I follow the law. That was the law. Once it was overturned, I did what I thought was right because I took away, dropped the charges. He didn't do it. He raised forty-three thousand again, roughly. Yeah, it was. Yeah, forty. So, if you round up, forty-three. So, 43. to put it in perspective, Josh Call had two donations, one each, in this last period that were forty-four thousand dollars. That's more than Tony raised the entire <laughs> six months. All right. Yeah. Now you have Adam Jarko formally announcing. Now, Jarko got in last fall basically to prevent Tony from having a chance to coalesce Republican support and to find somebody else. Jarko wanted somebody else to run. 
Nobody else stepped up. Jake Curtis, who's an attorney, he thought about it. He decided no. That got Jarko more serious. Now he's got announced a campaign team that includes Adam Hitt, or uh, yeah, Adam Hitt, the former state Andrew Hitt, the Andrew Hitt, yeah, yeah the former state party chair. He's on there. Rick Graber, another former state party chair. Uh, David Prosser, former Supreme Court justice, Congressman Tom, some you know Republican heavyweights. He's trying to send a message of, I can't show you how much money I can raise until July now because Jarko just gave himself ten thousand five hundred bucks in November, December. He didn't raise any money from anybody else. We won't know if he's a for real candidate until July. That report comes out, the fundraising report. That team is supposed to send a message of he's for real. He's got the support. He's going to be decent. Jarko's never been a prosecutor, though. We like DAs. We like prosecutors running for Attorney General Wisconsin. Right. That's been proven. But if the environment's bad enough for Democrats, can you overcome that? So Jarko, I mean, some Republicans think the primary's already over, that Tony missed his window and Jarko's going to run away with this thing. We'll see about that. Then it becomes a question of can a non-prosecutor beat a sitting attorney general in a good environment for Republicans? Oh, by the way, that's as of right now. Things could get better. Well, if, right. if COVID is better in September, if inflation is down, if gas, gas prices are going to peak in May. I mean, Biden's numbers are going to be bad in May when gas prices go up again. If they're back down in October, maybe. You know, there are all, all kinds of what-ifs right now. But it is going to be a challenge to not have that prosecutorial background for Charco running against Josh Call and Eric Tony, he's got to he's got to find something soon because he's on very soon. Right now. Yep. All right. Well, that will do it this week. Another busy week in Wisconsin state politics. Thanks for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin, and I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. Rewind. Your week in review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.